We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Taipei-based freelance journalist Chris Horton, whose work regularly appears in the New York Times. Hi, Gavin. Great to be back. And Lauren Dickey, a PhD student in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, who also went to SOAS, where all the best people go. Thanks for having me on tonight, Gavin. Anyway, tonight we discuss Taiwan's denied entry to a UN climate change meeting, a busy APEC summit, concerns about cyber attacks ahead of next year's local elections, doctor-assisted suicide, there's a first, and we're going to talk about cats, just because we can. But we'll begin with the ballooning Qingfu shipbuilding scandal and the bevy of fresh revelations, speculation and sharply denied claims that have made front page news nearly every day this week on one, if not all, of the island's major newspapers. It's all very messy and a subtle nod by one of the main players has managed to drag in officials from both the current and previous offices of the president. And they in turn are rabidly denying any wrongdoing and predictably enough blaming each other for the situation. The Qingfu shipbuilding scandal, of course, began in August, and the company is being investigated for fraudulently obtaining a 20.5 billion NT syndicated loan from nine local financial institutes for allegedly transferring some of that money to overseas bank accounts and for defaulting on the loan itself. Now, Qingfu is also being looked at for allegedly rigging a bid to win the right to use Kaohsiung's Qingda Harbour, and questions are also being asked if that's not enough in regards to companies being awarded a contract in 2014 to build six mine-sweeping vessels for the Navy. And if all that wasn't already complicated enough, it was revealed this week that Qingfu Chairman Chen Jingnan and his son and company Vice Chairman Chen Weizhe visited the presidential building six times, and at least one of those visits was allegedly related to press the Tsai and Ma administration, allegedly, to help expedite a 2.4 billion NT payment from the Navy for the mine-sweeping project. Now, two government officials, J James Huang and David Lee have admitted to meeting with the Chens in September of last year, but they deny talking about the minesweeper project payment, while the KMT has admitted that its officials met with the Chens several times, but those talks also did not have anything to do with a $2.4 billion payment. Anyway, so there we go. You have done a really good job of summarizing what is a super messy situation and one that I think has some serious implications for kind of how Taiwan goes forward with its shipbuilding programs. So the the Qingfu, this whole scenario right now, um, the biggest question for me is what happens going forward? Is the contract with Qingfu dissolved? And if so, is it handed over to another shipbuilding company domestically? And then if it is handed over, what does that mean? Um, are they still able to get these six minesweepers out in the mid-2020s as hoped, adding to Taiwan's current fleet of about a dozen minesweepers? Or if that fails to happen, do they need to reopen the bidding um, and find a new shipbuilder, new subcontractors, and, and move forward in a way to get these six extra ships into Taiwan's fleet as hoped? Yeah, I think both of you have done a great job of summarizing the uh, the many moving parts uh, with with this issue. Um, as far as Qingfu goes, uh, there's there's it seems like there's way more questions than answers. Uh, the nod was uh, was one of those things that uh, you know just uh, kind of made something that was already not very clear even even muddier. Um, the, the presidential office visits uh, those 
you know, these are going to undermine people's trust, which are, I would say, you know, there's there's issues with trust and morale uh, that that uh, need to be addressed, and there, there needs to be an investigation to uh, to make things to to bring things to light and uh, restore people's confidence in in what's going on and what's been what's been going on and how things are going to move forward. Of course, Lauren, the question is, if this this scandal obviously involves shipbuilding, but what about aircraft building, tank building, armoured car building, infantry weapon building? Right, and that's a huge question mark for me, at least. As I look at the Qingfu scandal, if, if we can call it that, um, that raises a really big question for me of if Taiwan can't even get these six minesweepers right, then what happens to other arms that it's trying to build indigenously or procure from overseas? If it can't get this all sorted out with the, the various factions that are competing with one another and the money that has you know, potentially been laundered from overseas, if it can't get the communication between the presidential office and the MND correct, then what becomes of, for instance, Taiwan's submarine program that it's trying to start up and build indigenously? I think... Uh, Qingfu is really, it just, it creates this big question of, you know, how can Taiwan not only, as Chris mentioned, kind of build the morale, again, of its domestic defense industry, but how can it go forward and and put this case to rest as a lesson um, for the rest of, of domestic defense procurement? I mean, Chris, you mentioned morale there. I mean, do you think the public, what do you think the public thinks about this? Well, I haven't spoken to a lot of people about this, but uh, I I would not be reassured uh, by this. Uh, I you know, and and the the recent uh, news that uh, Ching Fu had also approached uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a loan uh, for a project uh, with Tuvalu uh, that that would further erode my confidence in the uh, procurement process and just just the the whole uh, military uh, military building process because. You know, th- this is amateur. You know, amateur hour. Like, why? Why are you going to your own Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a loan? Uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they said, uh, you know, they, they they would not be involved in any sort of in in in, in the uh, Tuvalu deal in any way, unless it threatened uh, diplomatic relations. Um, you know, and it's just like, wh- why is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs even, you know, having to answer these questions? It just it's just. Uh, it feels like things are all over the place and uh, people need to get their houses in order. And, of course, one of those groups that has to get its house in order is the Ministry of National Defence, of course, because the questions have arisen about why did you give this company the tender to build the minesweepers when, obviously, there should have been a question mark over it? Yeah, that's 100% accurate. Um, I think from the outset, it appears that there was not a full or thorough review done of both the technical and financial responsibilities um, and capabilities of Qingfu shipbuilding. So there is another company that was in the running at the outset, uh, CSBC, for the contract to build these minesweepers. And it appears from at least what I've read um, that Qingfu was kind of arbitrarily determined to be the most suitable uh, company to build these ships and a full review of their financial situation was not done and right now you've got as you noted Gavin they're they've defaulted on their loans um, they're really not financially able to, to stay afloat and more importantly even to build these minesweepers the first one was going to be built in Italy um, by an Italian firm with some US companies helping out with other systems in the minesweepers and then they would bring the others back to Taiwan to build but the problem there is that the company was not even able to get the licenses to 
to export the technology from Italy back to Taiwan. So from about 2014, 2015, when the Minesweeper project first started, there have actually been red flags along the way. And M&D um, has not chosen to dissolve the contract or to fix the problems when they had the chance previously. And so they've now just kind of reached this, this boiling point, I think. Do you think this, this scandal will become as large as the Lafayette scandal? Can it be that large? I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Depends on what, what else there is to, to, to learn. Coming out of the woodwork. I mean, yeah. you, Chris, yeah. do, you think, do you think there's much more to come out of the woodwork? Well, it, it, it hasn't really stopped. Uh, the, the Tuvalu thing, I, I mean, that was just in the last few hours. Uh, I have no idea. It's, it's, uh, it's a mess, though, and uh, someone needs to clean it up. But do you think that the KMT and the DPP will pay tit for tat in the blame game? Or eventually it will fall down to both the parties when they were in the presidential office. It's both the parties fought, not one single party. Um, I could see a little bit of both. Yeah, I agree with that. I think both parties are going to end up being at fault on this. Anyway, moving on to a far less complicated issue now, and that of Environment Minister Li Yingyuan, who was barred from entering the venue of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Bonn at the beginning of this week. Taiwan is, of course, not a member of the UN, but the island's environment ministers have previously been allowed to take part in the meetings under NGO observer status, but not so this year. And Taiwan's delegation was instead forced to hold private discussions with delegates from member states on the sidelines of the event, and of course well away from the actual venue. Now, the blame for the ban on Taiwan's attending the climate change talks is being put solely on China. Well, here it is anyway. As in Beijing, well, the Chinese are putting the blame on Taipei, with a spokesman for China's Taiwan Affairs Office saying that Taiwan has itself to blame for the poor state of ties and its inability to participate in events such as the climate talks. So, Chris... Blame game again, more blame game. Who's to blame then, Chris? Uh, everyone's to blame. It's <laughs> blame everyone. Um, I, I think uh, you know this would this would be a good chance for Beijing to uh, come across as this global climate climate change leader that it's uh, been been hailed as in in, in the press. Um, in the Western press uh, and in, in its own press as well, um, and I, I, you know, I think they missed this opportunity. Uh, you know, Taiwan's not going to be independent if it, it you know, it's not going to get independence if it joins this uh, committee. They can look like uh, or these meetings. Uh, it's it's an opportunity to have that magnanimous emperor kind of vibe. Uh, like, yes, we'll allow you because you're the 22nd largest economy. You're the 24th largest. Uh, uh, producer of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and I, I think that would that would actually probably win win some hearts and minds over here. Not, maybe not that many, but uh, I, I think this uh, this this Chinese attitude of of zero tolerance for uh, for anything during the uh, during the Tsai administration, um, without total capitulation by by the Tsai administration, it's uh, it's it's self defeating and. Um, you know, ultimately, Taiwan, China, and, and the rest of the world will. You know, no, but none, no one really benefits because Taiwan is it's a major uh, polluter. Uh, pound for pound, it's uh, it's you know it's it's one of the biggest polluters on the planet, and. Uh, you know, it, it needs to be involved in these talks. And quite ironically was a report by German Watch at the UN conference released this week said that Taiwan, in fact, ranks seventh in terms of countries most severely impacted by climate change. Exactly. And the report went on to say that the surge of Taiwan's ranking from 51st last year to seventh this year, sadly, underscores the vulnerability of small island states and poor countries facing extreme events. 
And I think that just speaks to the fact that Taiwan needs to have a place at this sort of conversation and needs to be included. But the problem is, is, as Chris started to say, is that China's just going to continue to demean and diminish Taiwan, regardless of how much it needs to be at the table and how capable Taiwan is of contributing um, to these sorts of climate change conversations. But because, you know, Beijing doesn't see Taiwan as as an equal player um, because Taipei hasn't recognized the 1982 consensus and the one China principle, then Beijing is going to continue to squeeze Taiwan at any and every opportunity it gets at the international level to include the UN and its affiliates. Obviously, Chris, climate talk is quite important for everybody. I mean, what do you think other countries are thinking? What do you think your readers in America are thinking? Well, I I think uh, China has done a very good job of, uh, you know, sidelining Taiwan in general, but especially uh, during uh, the the Tsai administration, they've taken every chance possible. Um, Everything that China does is is through a political lens. And, uh, you know, for people in the States or or elsewhere in the world who don't really understand the the whole cross-strait dynamic and Taiwan's actual status... I think for them it's it's all confusing, and Taiwan can come across looking like looking like a troublemaker that's provoking Beijing. I mean, I think that's what Beijing wants. Um, but anybody who understands what's going on is you know there's there's Taiwan's sovereignty at stake, and you know it, it's uh, it's it's not a light matter. You don't just you don't just agree to uh, the so-called 1992 consensus uh, so you can get into a meeting. But that said, I think the need for Taiwan to continue to find ways to be included in the conversation is really important. So this time, as in other cases, uh, the statements that have come out from from MOFA, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and other Taiwanese authorities have said that you know Taiwan may have been excluded, um, but they found space to talk with other leaders, with other delegates on the sidelines of this conference. And I think that moving forward, if China continues to exert this this political pressure upon Taiwan at the international level, having these sort of meaningful closed-door conversations with other countries that are like-minded and want to include Taiwan, that's going to be very important to ensure that Taiwan's voice gets heard and that it is included um, in issues like climate change. But do you think if Beijing's just going to block the Taiwan delegates from attending these conferences, ban them from the building if you want to go that far, do you think there's any point in Taiwan sending its delegates to these meetings, or should Taiwan just think about maybe, hey, let's just organise our own meetings with the countries we would have met anyway. So I think there's pros and cons to both of those opportunities, right? I think uh, sending a delegation there is really important because it shows that Taiwan is committed um, and that even if Taiwan faces a closed door when it gets there, that it still is trying really hard to be engaged in these conversations. At the same time, though, if Taiwan were to invite you know, some of these dignitaries, these ministers and other officials back to Taipei to engage in climate or other issues here in Taiwan, that could also be a really strong symbol. Um, that of Taiwan moving forward, even though it's facing this continued Chinese opposition. Yeah, I, I, I agree with both points. Um, basically, uh, it's it's one of those situations where y- you have you have to do a little bit of both. I think getting delegates to come to Taiwan is is a bit trickier because Beijing will try to block that. It'll threaten. Uh, it'll harass. It'll do whatever it can to uh, to to you know put the fear in in other countries. Um, the only forum I can see outside of the UN that uh, offers any hope for for Taiwan to uh, play like a meaningful a meaningful role in interacting with other economies. Uh, with other countries is is APEC actually, 
And let's go there now. Why not? You mention it. Let's go there. And of course, that meeting was last week and the beginning of this week. And of course, the delegation from Taiwan was headed by James Sung, the People First Party chairman. He did quite well, of course, in Da Nang, Vietnam. He met with Singaporean Prime Minister Li Xianlong, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He had little chit chats with China's President Xi Jinping. He met with South Korean President Moon Jae-in. And he met with numerous other APEC and Asian leaders. Now, Sung, when he came back, also said that he had very good interactions with US President Donald Trump between summit events. Now, obviously, some of those meetings were little bit quick conversations. But still, it does look, Chris, like James Sung was a very busy man and certainly doing the job he was paid to do in Da Nang. Yeah, I think it was overall it was successful. I mean, it, as as I was saying just just before about APEC, it's it's. All, all the APEC members are considered economies, so this is this is why um, it, it took a little bit of convincing China during the negotiations for China and Taiwan to enter APEC uh, to to accept Taiwan joining. But Hong Kong is also a member. It's because it's it's considered a separate economy. Um, so that was a pill that that Beijing was able to swallow, and this this is basically the UN for. Uh, for Taiwan, it's it's the only place where it can it can interact with other countries and, and governments and representatives unimpeded. Sure, you know, with Trump, he, it's just a little bit of a you know passing in the in the hallway and ha- having a having a handshake. But uh, but these things these things are important, and I think the choice of Song uh, as as Taiwan's representative, uh, obviously, that's going to be a little more palatable than. Than someone who who would be, uh, you know, someone on the green side of the of the spect- political spectrum, for for uh, Xi Jinping in China. So I, I mean, you know, I, I think China, and from what I understand, China and Taiwan, uh, they they do interact more than just just the leaders shaking hands at APEC. It it does seem to be one of the the main vehicles, especially now that uh, official communications have been have been uh, halted by by Beijing. Um, I think this is this is a really good chance for the two sides to get together and and have meaningful interaction. And I think even beyond meaningful interactions in the in the Taiwan Strait side between China and Taiwan, there's a lot of opportunity at APEC for Taiwan, much like at the UN, as we were just talking about, to show up and show how committed it is. Yeah. And so looking at the, the kind of tangible outcomes of APEC this last week. Um, I was just reading through some of the things that Taiwan committed to, and you've got you know a push to have an infrastructure fund for Southeast Asia. Um, you've got Taiwan signing on to this women empowerment fund with the United States and Australia. And I think like this just speaks to the fact that that Song, this is his uh, second APEC to attend under President Tsai. He shows up and he's got the support of the presidency um, and is really willing to go all in and make sure that Taiwan is a player um, at the table and is really contributing in a positive way to the Asia-Pacific economic region. But, I mean, sadly, Joe Blow Public doesn't actually really see any benefit from APEC. Yeah, and that's the tough part, right, is, like, how do you sell... The, the benefits of APEC, of things like this infrastructure fund, of the Women's Empowerment Fund, how do you sell that to the public? And I think that comes back to um, a domestic political issue, and it really falls to the current administration here in Taiwan, um, to make sure that the messaging is there and to link James Song's actions in uh, da-, da Nang, Vietnam, this past week to um, policy issues such as the southbound policy and to say, you know, like, here's what he did, um, here's how this is going to 
going to help further Taiwan's agenda vis-a-vis Southeast Asia and here are the implications for not only for Taiwan but also for Taiwan in the world. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think in, in general, this is uh, – I, I don't know how much of this is for a domestic a domestic audience. I think a lot of these uh, initiatives, uh, the women's empowerment, the infrastructure, uh, these – this is this is all based. I think Taiwan's main interest is projecting projecting its soft power into uh, into the APEC region or the Asia Pacific region, and I th- I think you know even though these might not be the the um, you know it's they're they're not going to steal headlines from uh, from North Korea or whatever, uh, but th- these things will matter locally in in communities uh, in Southeast Asia and and elsewhere where uh, where they're being enacted. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we will be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the government is seeking to step up the island's cyber defence mechanisms due to concerns that Beijing or some other entity with possible links to the Chinese government could attempt to influence next year's local elections. And I spoke with Edward White of the Financial Times about the issue. Good evening, Edward. Good evening, Kevin. So, with the local elections coming up next year, there's rather large concern in some parts about possible Chinese interference in the ballot with cyber attacks. That's right. I mean, people that have been following Taiwan for for some time would know that cyber security is an ongoing issue. But attacks that were um, made against the DPP in particular uh, and recent years have sort of raised concerns now that they may be targeted again in the lead up to the to the local elections next year and so especially after the issues that have sort of been unearthed around Russia's influence in the US election these issues seem um, a little bit more pertinent now than they may have a couple of years ago. Do you think that Beijing can get away with it, disseminating false information on the internet? Of course people in Taiwan are a bit more sort of news savvy one could argue. Yeah, I think we should be probably a little bit careful with just um, talking about Beijing in general. I mean, the cyber experts, they all say that it's really difficult to pin these cyber attacks to a particular state actor. So whether it's, um, you know, just sort of people online in China that are targeting Taiwan or whether it's actual um, state actors from China targeting the DPP in particular, you know, it's difficult to find real concrete evidence that it's coming from the Chinese government. However, people are, are really certain that it is, these attacks are coming from, from China. In terms of whether the sort of Taiwanese are more, I guess, aware of these issues, I would say that they are, but having looked at what had happened in the US, that doesn't necessarily matter. You know, these sort of new ways of targeting people through uh, through advertising and media or through sort of campaigns online or through social media. These are all new ways of, uh, of trying to influence people. So it's difficult to know whether people would necessarily be aware that they're being subjected to a being subject to a new kind of form of um, form of influence campaign. And of course, currently, official statistics on the number of attacks, the locations of the attacks and where they come from is classified. I mean, do you think the government could be forced to actually release this information if they believe that China or another third country is trying to influence the elections next year? 
Yes, I'm expecting that the the Taiwanese government will next year, um, in a sort of an annual report for one of its um, cybersecurity agencies, will next year start to publish some of these figures. I mean, officials have thrown um, numbers around in the past, but it's been difficult to sort of track them year on year as to whether there's been an increase or a decrease or where they're coming from. But um, given, yeah, as you say, given the sort of the public interest in this around the elections, I would definitely expect um, some more data to come out of the government around this. And they are, are the government expecting, like, disinformation or possible attacks on ballot stations themselves? Oh, I think that's probably pushing it too far as to exactly how attacks, um, you know, exactly what form they would take. What, what, what we know at this stage is that the DPP itself has been targeted in recent years and that the the party is not 100% sure that there isn't some sort of Trojan horse or lingering um, issues from those previous attacks and that they're still under attack so that they still get targeted uh, on a frequent basis and then the government uh, departments also get targeted on a frequent basis. So what form these um, these sort of influence campaigns will take is, is pretty difficult to say at this stage. I think it's more of a case of you've got a lot of resource going into trying to defend against um, a real constant threat, but people aren't really sure as to exactly how uh, China or Chinese sort of actors, you know, exactly what they will be looking to do or how they may go about influencing things. Right. I mean, if you had to say yes or no, will they or won't they, do you think China could attempt or will attempt to influence next year's election using cyber attacks, or do you think they'll possibly back off? Oh, I think, you know, I mean, I can only sort of say what, pass on what the experts told me in my sort of interviews for the for the article that I wrote, and that is that um, it, the preparations have kind of been, the groundwork, I guess, has been laid in terms of profiling visitors that are going to the um, DPP website and also, you know, targeting the government agencies through um, what are sort of known as um, sparing or kind of uh, attacks where they will target, um, try to collect influ- uh, users' data and things like that. So all we, all we know is that the sort of, the, the, in the run-up to the election, people from China have been doing things that could enable them to run influence campaigns. And we, I sort of, I wouldn't want to comment further than that at this stage. That was me in conversation with Financial Times' Taiwan-based reporter, Edward White. So, Lauren, you read Ed's piece there in the Financial Times. What do you think? Ed had a good piece. Um, I think it raises a really important issue that Taiwan feels a need to make sure that it has a more robust uh, cyber defense and that it it is susceptible to attacks from the Chinese. Um, I read somewhere a statistic that they think they get roughly 7 million attempts um, at hacking per year. And that's just an incredible, if you break that down per day, that's a huge number um, to really think about their servers that are coming under attack. And, and for the Chinese the up in mainland China, this is... Uh, a testing ground, really. It's to see how far they can get in trying to influence Taiwanese politics and the Taiwanese public. And um, they're aided by a common language, right? As long as the Chinese hackers get the difference between simplified and traditional characters correct, um, they're they're much better positioned to infiltrate Taiwanese servers than they are other languages in other countries. And so I think for Taiwan moving forward to ensure that its elections remain free and fair, um, that its people are not influenced in their voting or in their political preference otherwise, then yeah, having a more robust cybersecurity is absolutely necessary.
Lauren did a great job of covering all the main points there. Um, and my understanding is no place comes under more uh, hacking attempts on the planet than uh, than Taiwan. And I think it's pretty obvious that most of those attempts are coming from China. Um, they've uh, they've done a good job of, of being a, an island fortress, but I, I think they need to make they need to take the same uh, the same approach mentally towards cybersecurity. I mean, honestly, like I, I've I've never I've never voted in Taiwan. I'm not sure how how the elections go, but I think uh, as as the U.S. elections showed recently, you know, uh, there's there's nothing wrong with voting with paper. Um, you know, it, it would it might be it might be safer to just do it that way. But um, there there's there's definitely uh, a lot of vote influencing. Uh, Going on these days, and Taiwan, uh, you know, it, it 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 needs to do everything it can to avoid becoming a part of that. Do you think China would have the the cojones to go all out in trying to uh, manipulate, to use a word, the elections next year, or do you think it would just maybe try try a little attack? So, if we were to use the last the presidential elections um, as an example. I think from that, it's safe to say that China is at least willing to figure out what the campaigns are doing and to figure out how the parties are thinking about the elections. Um, Are they willing to do an all-out attack to influence the electoral outcome? That is really hard to say. I mean, the, 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 the PLA hackers are an incredible force, and they definitely should not be underestimated. Um... But would China risk, you know, the fallout of trying to sway the elections in its favor? I would hope not, right? But, like, that doesn't mean Taiwan should play it safe and not build a robust cybersecurity system. I think it's better to prepare for the worst-case scenario um, in this as in other areas. Or they go back to paper and we have hanging chads. (laughs) (laughs) That's one alternative. (laughs) Anyway, speaking now about something we rarely talk about, if ever talk about here on Taiwan This Week, and that's doctor-assisted suicide. Now, this story stems from former sports commentator Fu Da Ren, who recently travelled to Switzerland to seek assisted suicide. Now, on Wednesday of this week, he went to his Facebook page and told his followers that he's checked into a clinic there and he's been given the OK to die at any time he wishes. And they're his words, not mine. Now, on his Facebook page, Fu posted a photograph of the green light passport issued by the clinic, a set of patients' instructions in the event that he is no longer able to express himself or make judgments at some point in the future. He also said that he met with doctors and the head of the clinic and, well, he's going to have doctor-assisted suicide. But the 84-year-old, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was given four to six months to live, has also come out and said that he plans to stream the said assisted suicide, which will take place in Switzerland, live on the internet. Now, in response to that, Taiwan's health ministry and the Department of Medical Affairs from said ministry said that while streaming live and assisted suicide is not against the law in Taiwan, it could be controversial. Well, it could be controversial Yes, or yeah, completely. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt, it's controversial. Um, I would actually be interested, as this kind of plays out, to see if the server he streams through, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or whatever, comes in and says, we actually don't want this on our website and says, you know, it's against terms and conditions. But for here in Taiwan, um, you know, this is probably going to start a, a healthy debate on what assisted suicide means for society, whether it has a place here in Taiwan, um, whether it's 
ethically or morally right or wrong. I mean, these are questions other societies have encountered in my own country, Chris's country included. Um, and, you know, there's nothing nothing wrong with that debate. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think Taiwan has, has a very progressive streak in it as well as a very conservative streak. And I think... Uh, you, you're going to see a lot of a lot of uh, arguments being made from uh, the side the sides that you would expect uh, them to be made from. Um, but you know, there's uh, there's a high incidence of, of cancer. This is an aging society. Um, I I could see a lot of people who normally you know maybe they maybe they they they're conservative and they still support the death penalty, but they might uh, they might actually be more amenable to something like this because it's uh, it's hitting a little bit closer to home. Lauren, do you think this can happen overnight? There would de- be debate in the legislative UN about this, or do you think this will take time for lawmakers to digest? I think it's going to take time. It took time, and it's taken time in other countries. In the U.S., at least, it's just kind of been state by state that the debate has come up. And obviously, um, Taiwan's smaller than the whole of the United States. But I really do think that for it to become a debate, um, it's going to take maybe even more than one instance of someone going overseas for an assisted suicide. Well, I, I think the, the initial round of, of debate and discussion is, like like anything in Taiwan, it's going to be on the Internet. And uh, it'll be interesting to see who uh, which, which side comes out stronger. Um, I'm tending to think that people are going to possibly be be open to the idea um and i think i think the aging society that's that that's just for me the the uh the the aging baby boomers here that's that's the thing uh that i think is going to drive the the discussion the most so Taiwan's already this, like, it's a medical tourism destination, too, right? right? So it would be really interesting, I think, to see as this debate unfolds, you know, does Taiwan ultimately end up as a spot for assisted suicide tourists? Kind of Come a- die in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you're full of joy tonight, aren't you, really? <laughs> But, I mean, that's not going to happen overnight. No, no, of course not. No. Anyway, before we go, unlicensed sellers of cats in Taipei are going to be facing fines from next October as the city seeks to curtail a rising problem of feral felines. Now, the Taipei City Animal Protection Office this week said that the new rules will require businesses that sell, breed or even board cats to obtain an operating permit. Now, the new rule comes into effect after lawmakers last month revised the regulations for particular animal industry management to include cats. Previously, only dogs were covered under those regulations. And, of course, we had a problem with dogs here in Taiwan many years ago, but that problem seems to have gone away from the streets anyway, but they have now moved to other places. So, Lauren, a problem with cats. Do you think cats are a problem here? How many cats do you see when you walk home? I actually don't see too many stray cats. I still see some of the the kind of stray dogs roaming about, ironically. Um, Is it a problem in Taiwan? You know, as much as it's a health concern in case the cats have rabies or other diseases, then sure, it's it's good to crack down on this. Uh, My understanding is that when you register your cat, then it also comes with various vaccinations that they're required to do. So, you know, it's a net positive, I think. Um, It'll be interesting to see what some of these, you know, trendy, posh little cat cafes end up doing do they register on mass or i've never understood why anyone would want to go and sit in a cafe <laughs> with cats because of course cat urine and feces can be problematic to some people right or even just their hair right so... <laughs> and they might sit on your computer <laughs> i think that's the least of problems unless it takes a doo-doo on your computer that could be problematic <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I'm just I'm just happy to see uh, cat dog equality. Um, <laughs> cats, cats, you know, they're 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 just as uh, you know they're just as pre- prevalent in in the city. I would say as as dogs. Maybe maybe dogs are a little bit uh, more more commonplace. But uh, I, I see cats all the time when I when I cycle or walk around the city. Um, dogs still seem to own the riverside, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously. Taipei loves its cats. The cat cafes is. The have you mentioned. been to a cat cafe? I I, I have not. Would, I, would you go to a cat cafe? Uh, you know, I guess I wouldn't because I haven't. If I would, I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't. It doesn't really appeal to me. But I like to see my friends' Facebook photos of of their interactions with cats at, at their cat cafes that they go. Right, Lauren, you've got a date. You go to a cat cafe or a dog cafe. Oh, I don't think I'd actually. <laughs> You've got to make a decision. Oh, I it's have the to only choose. place that your date wants to take you. Oh, that's a really tough choice, actually. I, could we go to? Could we strike a compromise and go to the park and walk a dog? Maybe I think that would be much rather to my liking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's where we'll leave Taiwan this week with the quandary over: Do we go to a cat cafe? Or a dog cafe. I've been joined in the studio this evening by Lauren Dickey. Thanks again for having me, Gavin. And Chris Horton. Great as always, Gavin. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.